Welcome to Clued in Mystery. I'm Sarah. And I'm Brooke. And we both love mystery. Hi, Brooke. Hi, Sarah. So today is Halloween. How will you be celebrating? Oh, I think I have a little pumpkin that I need to take, uh, gather some candy after school today. (laughs) That sounds fun. I remember those days fondly. But we have another extra special Halloween treat, and that is an interview with Teresa Peschel. Hello. Welcome, Teresa. Hello. I'm so glad to be here with you all. We're so glad that you could join us. So I will briefly introduce you and then we can get started. Teresa Peschel never planned to become a writer, nor did she plan to become an expert on film versions of Agatha Christie stories. At various times, she has been a sales clerk, a naval officer, a housewife, and a mother. She gardens, sews, reads, and is interested in sustainability, science fiction, and fantasy, and the history behind the mystery. Like Agatha Christie, she reinvented herself as a writer when she and her husband Bill co-founded Peschel Press in 2010. She currently lives with Bill, two of their kids, and four cats in Hershey. And yes, it really is the sweetest place on earth, and the air really does smell like chocolate. Welcome, Teresa. Oh, I'm always, always enjoy doing doing a podcast like this, and it's great to actually see you all in person because I have listened to some of your podcasts, and so this is a very this is a lovely treat. Well, thank you. We're so happy to have you. Uh, so before we begin, we just want to remind listeners that uh, there may be a few spoilers today. We'll do our best to avoid them, but uh, it may be impossible given that Teresa is going to be talking about Agatha Christie adaptations. Yes. So Teresa, you are the author of the highly detailed guidebook, Agatha Christie, She Watched, one woman's plot to watch 201 Agatha Christie movies without murdering the director, screenwriter, cast, or her husband. What made you decide to embark on this monumental project? It wasn't my idea. It's my husband. The uh, <laughs> What actually happened is that I saw my very first Agatha Christie film in 2017, and that was Sir Kenny's version of Murder on the Orient Express, and we were wowed. And over the last couple of years, um, no, it's going on 10 years now, I think, Bill has been slowly annotating classic Agatha Christie mysteries. And there's an amazing amount of stuff you can say about her first six books. And in, we also have a website, Peschel Press. And so in um, around about July of 2020, I was able to go to the library. The COVID pandemic had lifted up enough that I could go to the library in person And there on the rack of DVDs was Crooked House. It's a novel that's really very good. It's it's really a remarkable novel and a really great example of the fact that in Agatha Land, anybody can be the murderer and anybody can be the victim. Mm. You know, leave your Mm -hmm. preconceived notions at the door. You do not know who did it. You really don't. So I brought Crooked House home and we watched it and we really enjoyed it. And because the website needed fodder, I wrote a review. And then um, a short time later, Bill was in the throes of working on The Secret of Chimneys, uh, which is a actually a romantic thriller. It is a mystery, but it's actually more of a romantic thriller. And I thought, wow, maybe there's a movie connected with this and we should watch the movie. Well, as it turns out, there is a movie connected with The Secret of Chimneys and it stars Miss Marple and it is a terrible movie. 
Absolutely awful. But we watched it, and I wrote a review for the website, and Bill wrote a review for the uh, annotated edition. And on the library DVD, there were several other Miss Marple ITV episodes. So we watched them, and I wrote reviews for the website. And by the time I had done the fourth or fifth one, Bill said, you know, you could keep doing this, and eventually we'll make a book into it. And we had Mm -hmm. no idea that there were as many Agatha adaptations as there were. We didn't know how far back in time it went. We are we had no idea what we were letting ourselves in for. It took us two and a half years just to get to the finished book. So it was not my fault. It was my husband. It was my husband's <laughs> idea. I didn't do this. <laughs> but it worked out great. Uh, that, that's wonderful. I love the way that that came about. And I just adore the subtitle of your book. It's just it's just so fun and really gives uh, readers, I think, an idea of what they're in for. You're going to have a lot of your own flavor in this guidebook. It's really great. Oh, very much so. And I learned a huge amount about the film industry by doing the reviews because I started out as a purist. It should absolutely follow the text. It should absolutely be in the same time setting. You shouldn't change the location. You shouldn't change the dates. You shouldn't change the detective. You shouldn't do any of this stuff. And that's not the way the film industry works. And so you end up having to kind of really understand that films and books are very, very different mediums. And what you can do in a book, especially those internal monologues and soliloquies, they don't work in a movie. First person narration, that really doesn't necessarily work in a movie as well as as third person because, you know, you're watching from uh, uh, from behind the eye of the camera. And that's not the same as being in someone's head. They're so different. And you so you do have to make changes. And I had to get over that idea that it needed to be exact. I think that's such a great point because it can be disappointing for some when they have read a book and then they watch the adaptation and there's such a disconnect. And it's actually only through having conversations like this that I've come to realize why that disconnect happens, right? Because as you say, the story needs to be told from a different perspective. Or you're looking at Poirot, who started detecting in 1920 when he was about 60-ish, and he finished detecting in 1972 when he was about 60-ish. And you cannot do a TV series (laughs) in which Poirot does not age while the world around him ages 52 years. It does not work. And so that's why all of the uh, series, they end up condensing all of the uh, episodes, you know, uh, the, the stories into a single time period. It lets you avoid that aging, not aging issue. And it also lets the production company save simply buckets of money on set design and wardrobe and cars and makeup and everything else that's connected with a film. You can just keep reusing the same things. It just doesn't work any other way. And the other thing I would like to say about uh, the great advantage about film and movies is it keeps an author in the public eye. Every time that no matter what you can say about the quality of some of the Agatha Christie adaptations, and I've seen them all, and some of them are truly (laughs) awful, 
But each one introduces Agatha to an entirely new audience who may not have heard of her. And there are fans for every single film that I have seen, including the ones that I thought were just excretable. There are people who like them. And the Christie estate is really on the ball where this is concerned because they keep licensing the short stories, they license the novels. And so Agatha is not buried under the tsunami of swill that comes out every single day. And uh, I know that you all are familiar with Dorothy Sayers. Mm -hmm. wonderful mm -hmm. wonderful author a contemporary of agatha they knew each other lord peter whimsy is a fun detective uh we're annotating um we've annotated whose body and we've got clouds of witness up next uh she really needs annotating but dorothy sayers uh you think uh, you're familiar also with downton abbey okay mm -hmm. now think about this concept lord peter murder at downton abbey why isn't the Sayers estate licensing Lord Peter? And the answer is because the literary agency that owns it doesn't care. And so Dor Dorothy Sayers is disappearing because she mm -hmm. is not on TV. And whatever else you could say about, you know, having Lord Peter run around uh, great English country houses solving murders that had nothing to do with the books, it would have kept her books alive. And... The Christie estate doesn't want to see that happen. And so they are making mm -hmm. every effort to keep um, uh, Agatha out there. And it and it works. You figure for every single person who reads a book, 100 people go to the movies and 1,000 people watch TV. Right. So you have to do this. It has to be done. Christie and perhaps the Doyle estate would be the other one that I can think of that that does that. But like, I can't think of many others that, you know, remain in our collective consciousness. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, eventually, everybody falls into the public domain. But uh, Rex Stout and Nero Wolf. Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. There was a TV series, I think, or a series of movies with Rex Stout. So, but there weren't very many. They don't do it over and over. And they could. Mm -hmm. It's a great mm -hmm. pairing, but they're not there. And so they disappear. Uh, Rex Stout is mm -hmm. the first one that comes to mind. Ellery, Ellery Queen. Queen. Ellery Queen is another one. Where are the Ellery Queen movies? Where are the Ellery Queen TV shows? And you have to keep doing it. You have to keep re-releasing a new series because otherwise, again, you disappear into underneath the tsunami of constant media that's coming out and coming out and coming out and coming out. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I would add um, Chesterton because there's the Father Brown series that... Is on, oh, there's a perfect example of this. Um, when Agatha Christie wrote uh, Partners in Crime, that's the cycle of stories that she did with Tommy and Tuppence. And I didn't know this when we started the project. I was barely aware of Partners in Crime, even though I liked Tommy and Tuppence. Every single Partners in Crime story, and there were between 15 and 17 of them, was a parody of a famous writer of the time, a contemporary of Christie. And when you go back and read them today, because we watched the episodes of Partners in Crime, I would say that only two, she pair of the only three detectives she parodied whose names you would recognize would be herself, Conan Doyle, and possibly either G.K. Chesterton or Baroness Orksey. Everyone else is mm. gone. 
completely lost to time, and yet they were such big names in the 1920s when she wrote these that she assumed her audience would recognize them. Gone. They are gone. Even Edgar Wallace, who was a writing machine and came up with the idea for the Green Arrow and King Kong, gone. That's fascinating, Teresa. Um, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with your knowledge, and I'm so glad that you're sharing all of this with us today. Um, So a little bit about your process of doing the book. Did you set deadlines for yourself? Did you have a certain order to watch the shows in? Or did you and Bill just kind of take it as it as it came? Um, Largely, we kind of took it as it came because we had to start with what our libraries had, um, both Dauphin County and Hershey. So we kind of started with the marples, ITV's marples. And as I wrote the reviews, we started changing how I what I needed to focus on and working out the length of the reviews uh, for a long time. Uh, uh, once we realized how many films there were <laughs> and we realized if we wanted to get this done in our lifetime, we had to go, we were doing only one a week and then we had to go to two a week, but I couldn't do more than two a week. Um, so we would end up watching a full length movie on Friday and I would write the review on Saturday and we would watch a, an hour long episode of something on Wednesday so that I could write the review on Thursday. So we would intersperse and we would kind of go in order, starting with the oldest and working through the newest. And that's how we did the Margaret Rutherfords. And then when we got to the David Suchet's, we realized, oh, we've got the Peter Ustinoff ones. So sometimes you have a Ustinoff film that David Suchet remade and you want to see them one after the other so you can do comparisons. Uh, And and so we kind of moved back and forth. um, And as we neared the end of the project, we realized that, oh, Malice Domestic is coming up in April of 2023. And would we really like to have this book ready for Malice Domestic? (laughs) And then Bill, at the same time, he's working out the layout. And I can't show your audience this, but um, we knew that we wanted two pages for each film. Because that way you've got plenty of space for banner art and um, mugshots and cast lists and locations. Locations were important to me because that way, if you know where the location of a film shoot is, you can go look at it. When you're on vacation in England, you can go visit all of these sites. Um, the rating systems, and, and it took a while to for him to work out the layout to how it would actually look on the page. And then we would have to edit. He edited me and I would change his edits and we would go back and forth. Sometimes we would go over a review four or five times because it had to fit within a certain size. And again, we had to learn that as we went along. And as we were putting the book together, we're realizing that there were uh, reviews that I wrote early on that I didn't have, I hadn't said enough for the space limitation. And we have to go back and rewatch it and rewrite the review (laughs) to fill it out to, and, and there were other things when I first started, I didn't know that it was going to be a book at the time. And so we had to do a lot of rewriting and reworking. But as we got further along, we got better at it. In the book, Agatha, she watched um, one of the fun things we do. It's got uh, over a thousand pictures and we really had fun with the ratings. There are so many different ways that Agatha kills people. 
Villa's opening the page for me. So candlesticks and chairs and coshes and clubs and wine decanters and fireplace tongs and millstone querns and statuettes and ha sugar hat sugar hammers and wrenches and axes and razor blades and um, stiletto knives and butcher knives and being pushed over cliffs and pushed down stairs and garrots and stranglings and mummies curses and we have symbols for them all and it was it's amazing how how many ways she comes up with killing people and one of the things that i also got from the project because i had to read everything is agatha christie does not write cozies and you should never ever ever think that she writes cozies she does not anybody can be the murderer anybody can be the victim and that's the one thing i would say that when you go in to read and read any of the novels, she does not write cozies. You do not really know what's going to happen. And she is so good that some of her books can only be read once because the second time you read them, you were reading a different book because the ending is so dramatic, you will not forget. A lot of this, the standard mysteries as you read them, even with Agatha, you'll forget. You won't remember exactly how Peril at End House ended, you know, 15 years later, but you will never forget and then there were none roger Ackroyd, endless night or a murder on the orient express you will not forget that mm -hmm. and the second time around it's not the same book you talked a little bit earlier teresa about fidelity to text so let's talk a little bit about the new kenneth Branagh film a haunting in venice which was billed as being based on a halloween party what did you think of that connection <laughs> <laughs> there is a halloween party in there you can see certain aspects of the the novel uh i'm as i've thought about it i'm very happy actually that he changed the title and changed the setting because it does distinguish it from the novel and uh david suchet made a and mark gaddis made a really excellent version of uh, Halloween Party, and my God, that film should have been longer because you want to know exactly what Re what Rowena Drake's children thought of her relationship with the gardener. But a lot of it came uh, uh, came over into a Haunting in Venice. We were grat we were pleased, we were surprised and pleased that we enjoyed it as much as we did because I was dreading it. Um. Murder on the Orient Express, when we saw it in the theater, it looked incredible. The second time we saw it, we weren't quite as wowed, looking at Poirot's mustache like a piece of wool roving fresh from the sheep. And then the third time when we watched it again for the for the book, was not wowed at all when he turns Poirot into a gun-waving action hero, which he is not. And then Death on the Nile was, oh, oh my God, he didn't want Gal Gadot to be the villain, and so he radically changed her character from what Lynette Ridgway is, and all of the dirty dancing and dry humping on the sides of, 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 of pyramids, and oh my God, and they didn't film it on boats either, which I thought was simply <laughs> appalling. This is Death on the Nile, it is supposed to be on a ship, and they were not anywhere on a ship, whereas the other two Death on the Niles, they filmed on real ships, the Memnon and the Karnak. No, not the Karnak, uh, the uh, the Sudan, I think. Um, so we, I was thinking, oh God, this is going to be awful. And it wasn't. It was gothic and it was creepy and it was scary and it was very tightly written and it wasn't exactly Halloween party, but it worked. 
it really worked. And what really worked the best, because they still managed to involve a creepy garden, just like in Halloween Party, is that then you he he pulled out the motive from Nemesis and perfect explanation for why Rowena Drake did what she did. Just absolutely well, I was really pleased. And I would say if you are on the fence about going to see this movie, you should see this movie because this sends a message to Hollywood that you want to see this kind of movie and not movies involving men in tights and capes. <laughs> there were things I didn't like about it. I, I did not like how uh, Tina Fey as Ariadne Oliver was fine, but I did not like her motivation and that she couldn't come up with ideas on her own and that she was using Poirot and it was all a big fake setup because she couldn't come up with an idea and I absolutely couldn't buy that and I couldn't accept Poirot as an atheist. But, oh my God, the rest of the movie really liked it, really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to seeing it again when it comes on DVD so I can actually write a review. Yeah, I, I share your uh, frustration with Ariadne Oliver. I thought they, they played off of each other really well. And it, it was great until that last bit. Yes, it was when working. She, when, yeah, when she kind of revealed what her what her motivation was and, and I, I, it, um, I, really ruined the, the opportunity of bringing her back in another film. I know. I can't imagine what he was thinking. I really can't, even more than Poirot, you know, losing his faith and becoming an atheist, which I simply cannot accept. I can't accept that Ariadne Oliver, who was a very successful mystery writer long before she ran into Poirot, you see her in the Parker Pine stories. Yeah. And no, she wouldn't have that problem. She Her problem was kicking ideas out of the way so she could focus on one and get it done. And she didn't need to do to 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 do this elaborate plot. Now she wanted to do this elaborate plot to bring Poirot back out of his shell. I could have accepted that, but not. I have writer's block, and I need to steal an idea from you. No, that just did not work. Did not work. But so much of the rest of the movie, it worked beautifully. And um, being in that Venetian, uh, I think Palazzo is the right word, the building that is, uh, you know, multiple stories with water in the basement and surrounded by water and in the storm. And so you're in a locked house. You're in a locked building. You can't get out. And I thought that really upped the, uh, uh, the atmosphere because you could not escape what was going to happen. Yeah, I share your, your uh, feelings very similarly, Teresa, about dreading it. Like I was worried going <laughs> I think into everyone it, was. <laughs> and I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out how this was going to tie in with Halloween Party. Like, how in the world is it is this going to be connected? But as you say, it was, and it was really clever. You know, like when you'd hear a name, it would like spark the memory of the novel in your mind. And I felt, I felt like it was almost like a fun little game in and of itself. So. I, I overall, uh, I, I think it was well done. Oh, Bill's passed me a note that I should say why I refer to Sir Kenneth Branagh as Sir Kenny. 
And uh, this this actually kind of came from Bill. And it is because when we were watching, uh, I guess it was for the second time or the third time, uh, Orient Express, and he's got the camera flying around the train as it stopped on the trestle bridge. And you see Sir Kenny running across the top of the train, hundreds of feet above the chasm where he's going to plummet to his death if he slips. And Bill said that he remembered what Orson Welles said, that there is, and I'm going to misquote, there is the best, the best toy in the world you can give a boy is a movie set because he can do whatever <laughs> he wants with that movie set. And Sir, and Sir, Sir Kenneth Branagh became Sir Kenny in our house. <laughs> old because of that and he has great fun with his sets you know you you can recognize a, a Kenneth Branagh film when you see one because it is so beautifully composed every single shot is beautifully composed mm. to the point where even the birds are doing what they are supposed to do because that's what he wants them to do it's his set and it's his toy and you are going to and you are his little action figures and you're going to do what he wants but that's Sir Kenny and mm. yeah it, he did really well with um, uh, A Haunting in Venice, and I hope he makes another film with with Poirot. There are so many to choose from. Yeah, I, I agree. I, mean, I would definitely watch another. Do you anticipate, Teresa, and I know we're just making a guess here, but do you anticipate his future films will be more like this, where he takes the components and kind of mixes them together and creates something new? Or do you think he'll go back to doing more of the verbatim storytelling i have no idea because he changes things to uh suit himself and i'll tell you i was really surprised that he chose a halloween party it's not one of the big novels it's one of the last ones that agatha wrote and if i were to suggest a film i would say one of the great poirot novels that are there is no good english language film at all. And that would be um, Appointment with Death. Uh, David Suchet made it, and it had uh, white slaving nuns in the desert, and it was absolutely atrocious. But it's a wonderful novel. Mrs. Boyantin is one of the great Christie villains. Or there is a film version of Appointment with Death that is totally worth seeing, and it is, of course, Japanese with Mansei Numura, and it is a wonderful film, absolutely wonderful. They they took something very English set in uh, 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 outside of Petra, I think it was, and it's translated to 1950s uh, Japan, and it works. It is amazing. And then the other one is The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which again, David Suchet made, and it was terrible. God, what a mess that was. And there are actually, so there's actually uh, three versions of it that I've seen. And the English language one is terrible. The Japanese one is almost perfect, except they slightly changed uh, Roger Ackroyd's motivation, which I couldn't buy. And the Russian one was sublime. But you can't get mm. them easily. You can't get them easily. We, I don't know how Bill managed. He, he got lucky one day at Daily Motion, and there they were. Daily Motion? Daily Motion? Yeah, he got lucky at Daily Motion, and there they were, because things come and go on Daily Motion. And those would be perfect for Sir Kenny to remake. They would be absolutely perfect films because you don't have an English language version that's any good. 
that's fine. I just wanted to add, I really wanted to say off camera here, but he was talking about a Christie cinematic universe with Miss Marvel and Poirot. Which has been yeah, sort and- of done. That has been sort of done because there is a Japanese anime series called The Great The Great Detectives Marple and Poirot. And you have a teenage girl named Maybell, and she is the daughter of Raymond West, which makes her Miss Marple's great a great grand niece and she wants to be a detective so she is apprenticed with Hercule Poirot and there are 39 episodes but as far as i know because we did not sit through all 39 episodes we we did one poirot novel and we did one marple novel um poirot and miss marple never meet that they know about each other through maybell but mm-hmm. i can't imagine poirot and miss marple meeting and solving crimes i just i just can't <laughs> i just i just don't want to go there so i don't know maybe if 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 sir kenny is really serious about a christie cinematic universe then maybe he will remake a um 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 he'll take a miss marple novel and substitute poirot as the detective and depending on how you write the script that could work because one of the films that we saw uh it's not in this book it will be in the future one is uh tommy and tuppence a french tommy and tuppence in the 450 from paddington and it works it works and the reason why it works is they didn't really remake the 450 from paddington that you've seen with um miss marple with uh, Joan Hickson and uh, I think it was uh, Julia McKendrick. Jul- it might be Julia McKendricks, but I'm not 100% sure. It could have been Geraldine. What they really remade was the 450 from Padding called- Paddington called Murder, She Said, by with Margaret Rutherford and Mr. Stringer. And so you substitute Margaret Rutherford for Tuppence and Mr. Stringer for Tommy and you get the French 450 from Paddington. So you can do this. But you mm-hmm. have to be careful with your script. Mhm. And that's why fidelity to text is not necessarily important. It depends on how well they made the movie. Right. And we've talked about um on previous episodes the value in you know, even if you're a purist and you really like those uh, exact retellings, so to speak, you can see the value in some of these more creative adaptations because it brings new readers. It brings a new audience. It's what you said at the beginning, Teresa. It keeps Agatha Christie alive. Um, I imagine after seeing Haunting in Venice, people are going to go out and buy a Halloween party uh, to see what the what it's based on, and so there's a lot of value, even if that's not your cup of tea when things get changed up. Well, and sometimes when they change something substantially, ITV's Marple was really a risk-taking TV show, and sometimes it worked fabulously well. Miss Marple in Toward Zero actually worked surprisingly well, and Miss Marple in Ordeal by Innocence was outstanding. I really enjoyed it. It made that into a even more of a Shakespearean tragedy than it already was. Gwenda got changed quite a bit in order to become Miss Marple's former uh, housemaid, and it was 
it was heartbreaking. There's a scene there where you see Gwenda looking at herself in her wedding veil. And this is right after uh, uh, they've discovered that uh, Jacko didn't do it. And she's just, the family turns on her. The family that she thought was welcoming her turned on her, including Leo. And it's just heartbreaking. And I've, of the other versions I've seen of Ordeal by Innocence, you know, you see different forms of Gwenda, but not this one. And that's why fidelity to text doesn't necessarily matter because you all, I've also seen um, the Francesca Annis, James Warwick, they did um, Why Didn't They Ask Evans? And they did The Secret Adversary. And in both cases, they were so faithful to the text that they became stodgy and kind of dull. And you, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's difficult because the Russian Roger Ackroyd was extremely faithful to the text, and yet they managed to be fascinating. You know, it's hard. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. So in the end, it matters. Did the movie work? Did it tell a good mystery? That matters more than was it perfectly faithful to the text? Teresa, you mentioned a second book. Uh, So does that mean that you are continuing in this project? Yes. And in fact, we hope that your listeners will be able to help us with this project because we are working on the international Agatha Christie she watched. As it turns out, we have a few foreign films in Agatha she watched, but there are many, many, many more. And uh, as Bill is able to collect them with English subtitles, we are watching them. We have lots and lots of French. We have one Italian. Uh, We would like more of the Russian, but it doesn't look like we're going to get them. We've got uh, the Swedish uh, series with Sven Hydrasen. I hope I'm saying his name right. We have uh, a lot of Indian films coming up, some more Japanese. But there are so many Agatha Christie adaptations that if any of your listeners have access to them with English subtitles, we would like to know. And uh, I think Bill sent to you for your show notes the list of foreign films, which ones we have and which ones we don't. And if you were able to provide a DVD or a lead to watching some of the other Japanese films, which are truly stellar, or some of the other Russian ones, that's amazing what a good job the Russians do. We'll put you in the acknowledgments and we'll give you a copy of the trade paperback to express our gratitude for giving us another Agatha Christie. But it's been really amazing seeing how different they are. It's a great project and it shows how universal Agatha Christie is and at the same time how she can adapt to suit whatever the local audience uh, uh, wants to see. So yes, that's the uh, project that we're in the throes of right now is uh, the international Agatha Christie she watched. Um, I particularly would like if somebody can send it to us, Ms. Ma Nemesis, which is Miss Marple in Korea. It's a tw- um, like a 20 episode uh, TV series. And we would really like to see it. Well, hopefully one of our listeners will have a lead for it. That you. would be great. So, Teresa, share how our listeners can get in touch with you. Uh, We're very easy to find. If you type in Peschel Press, and I will spell P as in Papa, E, S, C as in Charlie, H as in Hotel, E, L, and then press. Uh, we pop up on Facebook. We're, uh, we have our own website, which we update faithfully with uh, reviews. So the reviews that I'm, I'm, I'm posting reviews now as we watch the movies. Uh, we're on Instagram 
Instagram is much more um, uh, up to the minute of what we're doing. The uh, We have a Facebook page and um, our website and our Instagram also list our various events. So we do pub- we do uh, public appearances and uh, book festivals and so forth in the Mid-Atlantic region. So somebody can come and talk to us in person. And we also have a monthly newsletter if you want to know what we're doing. And in my newsletter, I am very slowly writing direct sales for authors. So I have one half of the newsletter is devoted to what we're doing, and then one half of my newsletter every month is devoted to how you should approach the public when, uh, if, if you would like to uh, sell your books. So a lot of different ways to find us. That's great. We Thank do you. have a podcast of our own. We have podcasted a lot of the Agatha Christie's, uh, that the films that we watched, probably just over 50 of them, I think. We started doing it towards the end of the project. And um, and then when we finished uh, Ag- Agatha, she watched, we stopped doing the podcast. Although we will still do a couple more of the films because they connect to the annotated. But yes, we have discussed in detail some of the films of Agatha Christie on our own podcast. And again, if you look for Peschel Press podcast, you'll be able to find those Agatha Christie films. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Teresa. I think it was really wonderful hearing your near encyclopedic knowledge of Agatha Christie's adaptations and her works. And it's been such a pleasure to, to speak with you today. Thank you. It's it's really been a great fun for us. I have learned so much about Agatha Christie and no one has ever really done this. The last book that is about her um, movies per se was published in 1996 and it was essentially a cribbed from, it looks like it was cribbed from Variety magazine. And um, Dr. Mark Aldridge has a book about the films of Agatha Christie, but I don't know that he actually sat down and watched everything. It's a very uh, scholarly book. So this is it. If you want to learn about her films, about her film adaptations, this is it. And it was, it's been really fun, really enjoyed it. And it's been so fun talking with you today. Uh, And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on Clued in Mystery. I'm Brooke. And I'm Sarah. And we both love mystery. Clued in Mystery is produced by Brooke Peterson and Sarah M. Stephen. Music is by Shane Ivers at silvermansound.com. Visit us online at cluedinmystery.com or social media at cluedinmystery. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or telling your friends.